about three years ago, George Miller called and said, Gary, we'd like for you to come and uh, join me with, at a breakfast. And called Gordon and said, we'd like for the three of us to go to have breakfast with David Vanderpool. David grew up here, and uh, his wife, Lori Stallings Vanderpool, grew up here. And uh, David and Lori are now leading a ministry, a mission in Tamazoo, Haiti, an organization called Live Beyond. And at this point, so, so George said, come and have a little breakfast with us. So David came, and we had a little uh, discussion at the House of Pancakes over here on Addison, in Addison on Beltline. Visited some about the possibility of Preston Crest having some representation in Haiti. And prayed about that, thought about that, but set that aside and moved on to what we, what we do. About a year later, George called and said, can you come for a dinner over at Spring Creek Barbecue, you know, Preston Crest West. And so we went over there, visited with David, and uh, Lori was there at this time, and about eight or so of us were over there and uh, visited about the possibility of going to Haiti to work with, with Live Beyond. And once again, they shared that uh, story, the vision, the desire. Simultaneously, one of our young men, uh, Matt Irvin, who is who was in B1, has been for the past few years, uh, has, uh, was sharing with me that he'd like to lead a trip somewhere. And we discussed the possibilities of that. I love when our, when our single adults of whatever ages, as they think and consider about the possibilities where we can serve where we are or beyond where we are. And uh, so at that point, Matt and I began to talk and discuss about what we could do and some places that he had been, some places that I had been, some places that we'd heard about. Uh, we considered Europe. We considered uh, Navajo Reservation here in the United States. We considered a few other places but as we did that, David would periodically get in touch with us. And uh, then out of the blue, one day, uh, Jacob, ba uh, Caleb Bailey, George Bailey's, Elizabeth Bailey's uh, grandson, emailed me and said, Gary, this is Caleb. You remember me from A&M. Could I come up and share with you about this, minist this ministry and this mission that I'm involved with called Live Beyond? And so, Caleb, absolutely, come on up. And so he uh, shared in a Sunday morning class and uh, as he did that, before he did that, before I gave the invitation, and we had another contact from them, I emailed Matt and said, we might be having our answer developing. We prayed about that. We considered. Caleb came here. He led a B1 class. He came here and led communion thoughts on Sunday morning. And the prayers became uh, plans. The plans became uh, fundraising. And you'll hear a little bit more about that here in just a few minutes. But I want to stop and just say as an editorial, I love our group. I love our group who doesn't want to just simply do church, show up, and attend, and then go home. They really want to be about making a difference, again, locally, regionally, and internationally. And as we consider the possibility, and as Matt led the group, I supported him and as part of the group, but Matt led the group, I want to tell you I'm excited about the future of the church. I'm excited about where it is now, but I'm also excited about where it's going, because we have some solid, wonderful people here uh, who supported that, and you'll hear more about how some couldn't go but supported, some went and enacted this mission to Haiti. David and Lori have been now there for, I guess, what, four years? Four or five. And so they have, they left Nashville to go leave everything, sell everything. You all are very familiar with the Vanderpools, the Stallings family, the Vanderpool family, and so you're aware of their trek, their journey. Some of you helped raise them. It was an honor for us to go and to share that time with them. What you're going to hear tonight is a brief picture of what that mission is about and what our trip was about, and then maybe a few things that we may consider beyond today. So if you would, first, let's look a little bit at Live Beyond, and then we'll share time together on stage. Austin. 
That was a little snapshot of our trip. And if you would, let's have the team come on up here of our trip this summer, uh, this uh, past October. And we were also joined by another group from Abilene, and we went together to share that time together. Y'all come on in here. And, and I think we're missing tonight two of our team members. We knew one was not going to be with us, but the second one, Josh Alexander, uh, one of our young men, uh, had a commitment tomorrow morning that kept him from being with us tonight. And then Sydney Carroll, I think maybe on the road. I'm not sure where she is, but uh, if she comes in, we'll invite her on up. If you would tell us a little bit, first of all, introduce yourselves if you would. Jillian, start here and then go on down. And, uh, and maybe also tell where you're from so that people can get a sense of who you are. Hi, I'm Jillian Gatewood, and I'm from West Texas, Alpine, and then Southern New Mexico, Artesia as well. Um, I'm now Sherilyn Irvin. <laughs> uh, just got married two weeks ago to Matthew Irvin. Um, I am originally from Amarillo, Texas. And I'm Matthew Irvin, and I'm from Richmond, Virginia. And I'm Austin Roach, and I'm home now is San Antonio, Texas, and I really starting about to call Dallas home. So, so these guys know they've they've seen these pictures, but they know a whole lot more about uh, Haiti and about the trip. Tell us a little bit, Matt. First, start us off. Let us tell tell us a little bit about how what it was like for you to get involved with the leading of this trip. Yeah, so I guess it started probably about one year ago. Uh, I'd been to Haiti a couple times when I was in college. Uh, and had been in the in the B1 group for about, I guess, about two years. Um, and everybody in B1 kept talking about, man, we wish there was a mission trip for the for the B1 group, you know, specifically, or, you know, just something that a lot of B1 people would get involved in. Uh, and I, I kept hearing that over and over again, and I kept thinking, man, I would love to go back to Haiti. Uh, so I started talking to Gary about the possibility of leading a trip, not necessarily to Haiti, but anywhere, just just somewhere to get a group to go. Um, and so he kind of alluded to this before, but as, as we were starting to talk about those different opportunities, you know, we were really on the fence between three or four places. Uh, and it seemed like right, right as we were trying to make that final decision is when Caleb started to contact us. And uh, it, it didn't seem like a coincidence. It seemed like that's, that's really where we needed to be. Was it uh, something that, tell us what it was like to uh, pull a group together and begin the training process, if you would, before we, before we get to the trip itself? Um, sorry, like? The, the training, and uh, what was it like for you to put the training process together? We met some and had some materials. What was it like for you to kind of help facilitate that? Okay, uh, so we, we were working for about seven months, uh, preparing for this trip and putting it together. Um, and I guess for me, it was, I mean, I've never led a trip like this before. It was a bit of a learning experience. Uh, but to me, I think that's what I was most excited about going into the trip or starting the process. I was most excited about the effort, putting it all together. And uh, we, were, we were reading through a book, uh, When Helping Hurts. We were reading through that book together and had a, we would meet about twice a month uh, to go over just some different things to try to get us used to some ideas and some things that we would see in Haiti that we don't see in America. Um, so it was uh, it was it was a good learning process for me uh, to figure out how to how to get a group of people together, uh, and then it, I, I felt like our group as a whole became really close, and that was really cool to see from the leader perspective. Okay, what did you guys expect when you were thinking about it? Well, first, what led you to decide you want to go on this trip? Well, I have a younger brother who's a missionary. He's was spent two years in Sucre, Bolivia, and um, my younger sister also went on a short-term mission trip to Honduras. 
And I just felt, you know, hearing about their experiences, that, that was something that I wanted to experience because I knew it would help me grow a lot um, spiritually. Um, not that you can't grow spiritually here, of course, but um, kind of jumpstart some new growth. Um, and that's really what made me want to go. Um, I had been on previous mission trips as well in high school. Um, went to Brazil, Sao Paulo, and um, Paraguay. Um, and it was always such a blessing to go and see different cultures and to see um, God, how God's working within um, outside the U.S. And um, this trip um, happened. I was heavily influenced by Matthew. I, I wanted to be supportive, and um, it was... It's, it, it's an interesting story because at first I was kind of like, well, you know, I don't know. But, you know, if I say no, then I'm not being supportive. And then if I say, you know, I don't want to go just to, you know, go through the motions because you can't just go on mission trips without being fully, like, aware mentally, physically, and everything. And just over time, as we did the sessions, as we were reading um, When Helping Hurts, if y'all aren't familiar about it, it's about pretty much how to not be, uh, not make a big splash and then leave and then leaving the place worse off than when you left it. Um, but just going through that and through the, the classes, we kind of had our own classes and talking through it. By the time it came up, like I was ready, I was ready to go. So that's what motivated me to go. Awesome. What do you think? What did you, what was it like for you to to anticipate this and maybe what'd you expect? I had a little bit of a kind of, I knew what to expect a little bit. My dad and my brother, when he was in high school and when I was in high school, they went to Haiti and I was left out and I felt rather <laughs> sorry for myself. So this is my time. Um, but then, um, joking of course, then there was the earthquake in 2010. Hmm. And at that point I, I just gotten out of college and I was like, well, I could go right now, but there was a lot of things blocking that. I didn't really get to go, but then this came along, and I decided I'm going. This isn't. You know, I'm not going to let anything stop me this time because I really do want to go. I want to get out and see some of the life outside the U.S. and see, you know, some some of the ways that uh, God works in other cultures, mm-hmm. and uh, how <laughs> you said some of what we expect and we inter- encountered a lot. <laughs> sure. So you say we encountered a lot, and we did. Tell us a little bit about when we got off the plane in Haiti. Uh, we, we, we had the drive out to, the, out to Libyan. What do you recall, some of your experiences, what you were seeing in the, in the country itself, and then, um, and then when you started visiting with some of the people? What did you encounter at Haiti? Your first thoughts? It was hot. Um, you get off the plane and you enter into an airport that doesn't have air conditioning and you're like from the start you're like holy smokes like there's no air conditioning in this airport and it kind of hits you and then um, they start warning you about like you know make sure that you stay together um, don't make eye contact because it's it's corrupt it's corrupt there and um the, there will be people that will go through your bags and be like, oh, you want to take this in? Well, that's going to cost you X amount. Um, and, you know, it's just kind of, that's just how life is um, over there. 
So I was, <laughs> I actually kind of really, really took to heart what they were talking about, and I didn't realize like if the actual government officials stop you, you need to stop. So <laughs> I, <laughs> they were very thankful that an actual government official didn't come because I was like, nope, not talking to you. Like I'm going to keep going. <laughs> but as soon as you even leave the airport, you step outside, you just see this like, it, it like it, yeah, it, it hits you in the face. Um, the, you know, the cars are different. The, you, there's just people waiting to help you to, you know, get some sort of money from you or anything like that. And to also put into context, uh, we, were, we flew into Port-au-Prince, um, which is uh, about 3 million is mm -hmm. around roughly the number. And we are going to Tomazo, um, which how they explain it, it's probably like from was Dallas to Frisco, roughly. Um, about the distance, um, and it took us about two hours to get there. Um, that's just how bad the roads were. Um, there's, there's no traffic, like there's no, there's no law and order. Um, everyone's just kind of free for all, and um, they were like, hey, as soon as we get, there's no funny business, we need to get in, we need to get on the road, we need to get to the, um, the, compound, thank you, the compound before dark, because after dark, it's too dangerous to be outside the walls. So you're kind of going and you're like, holy smokes, like this, this place is, is a little scary. But um, anyway, I'm sorry, I'm talking too much. But um, that was just kind of a reality check. It's kind of you're, you're on this comfortable plane, and then all of a sudden you step off and boom, it hits you. When you were talking about uh, law and order, um, imagine, what was it, three, about that many people, but no road signs, no stoplights, no real roads. Uh, we would need every hand up here to count the amount of times we saw almost get plowed over by a truck when they were on a little moped or a bi bicycle because there was just people going and, um, on the roads. An intersection is an, isn't an intersection. It's absolute chaos. It's a... It's a that was pretty much going through all this place. You're just taking all of this in, and then all you can see is chaos. And there's a lot of people just sitting out on the curb, um, hundreds of people just sitting out on the curb, um, wait, waiting for, um, I guess, life to go on, really. They were, you could just see, see this, uh, this, this sense of uh, tiredness, weariness in their, in their eyes. Hmm. In the, uh, talking about the people, though, Later, we'll talk about the people outside the compound mm -hmm. versus inside the compound. Sure. Julian, anything? So, I've seen poverty before. I mean, but Haiti's on its own playing field. Um, their presidential palace has no running water. Um, there's no clean water supply. Something that I take for granted having here day to day. Um, they have no sewage system, no trash system. Um, they just throw their garbage in the streets. And I just remember seeing you know, wild animals, pigs, going through all the trash, and, little, and small children and adults rummaging through it to find food, um, anything that might have been left behind. And it was just very, very, very sad sight to see. Um, couldn't help but have your heart hurt when you were driving through those streets. And uh, a couple of these 
guys mentioned uh, when you first get there, there's just there's just kind of people all over the place. And, and what it is is in Haiti, there's not really any jobs. And, and in Port-au-Prince, it's better than a lot of places in Haiti. Uh, in Port-au-Prince, there's a couple manufacturing facilities. And uh, when I say a couple, I mean it's a couple for a city of three million. Uh, but virtually, the, there's the only job these people have is to survive. And so they wake up in the morning and walk down the street and try to do whatever they can to maybe make a dollar so they can, you know, buy some rice for their family that night. Y'all have been talking about the, the encounters that you're seeing with the people, the look in their eyes, Austin, the, the just poverty that you're talking about, Jillian. Then we get to the, the compound. We get to the Libyan compound. We didn't see that darkness. We saw a whole different encounter. When we got in there that night and I mean, we didn't get off the, the vans before they were crowded around, the Vanderpools, or staff, the kids, the children. What was it like for you to see that welcome party that they had for us? Anyone? I was intimidated. <laughs> I was a little intimidated because there's there about three dozen kids just like, you know, heading on the windows and everything. Like, oh, we're so glad you're here. Uh, so it was, um, it was a little nerving at first, but then um, once you get out and just kind of um, get in the moment. You getting out in, putting yourself in the moment. It's always really when you have a fa you always told yourself, "I want to help people." Mm -hmm. But once you put a face to it, things change. Mm -hmm. And when we got out of the vans, this was uh, in the moment, and it was for me. It was really um, you could sense joy in their eyes. Mm. Um, they were really excited to be there. They were really excited to see us. Distinct difference between the people we saw on the streets coming out and those children at Libyan. Saw joy. What else did you see? Um, so when we drove up, um, they were singing. Um, I don't know what they were singing, but they were singing. And um, as soon as we got out, they just started coming up to you and shaking your hands. And they would say, in English, they would say, hi, my name is. And they would say their name. So you, you kind of got overwhelmed because you're like, oh, my goodness, I need to remember all these names. I don't know how I can remember. And, it, and it's just overwhelming. And um, you're still trying to take in everything because you just saw a lot. And I feel like the whole trip, like I was trying, I was seeing and I'm just trying to process and it just wasn't sinking up. It was just what I was seeing wasn't computing um, in my head, but it was, you went from a sadness to like an excitement and a joy when you heard those kids and you're driving up, you're like, oh, all right, yeah. like this is, this is pretty exciting. So um, that's. One of the things I, I thought about too, and our church has been so good about supporting and going to Guatemala, Spanish-speaking countries, uh, Honduras, some, some other places that uh, we've gone. But this was not Spanish. This was French Creole. And we had, so, and this was very, I mean, there was no, for most of us, no connecting point. You know, I can stumble around in the Spanish-speaking countries and, you know, tell, speak my ten words, you know, and get a translator. This was totally different. And so that was another kind of a, a block uh, but, we, but we're, we were able to communicate. Uh, how did you connect with the kids or the people there? Or any, any thoughts you have about when we arrived? And, and, and by the way, let's also transition, if you have something there, but let's also begin to tell a little bit about what you saw in the ministries themselves. We worked with the children, and we want to hear some about the construction, but can you tell us a little bit about your experience when you got there and then transition a little bit to the children? Oh, it was 
it was joyous when we arrived. They were singing to us, and it, it was hard to make out. I think they were singing, I love you with the love of the Lord, I think. I think that's right. And uh, that was just so uplifting, because you, you, you've gone through all these unpaved streets of you know, poverty and despair, and you're so heavy-hearted. And then you're just so uplifted by these little children who, you know, you see, you've gone through the streets, you see where they've come from, and yet they, they're filled with the Spirit of God, you know, and, and that was an amazing, uplifting thing to come to, to witness when we first got there. Mm-hmm. It really changed the tone of that night. Um, Working with the children in the Cup of the Moon program, we, did, we would um, write, we had these little whiteboards, and we'd write words in English, and we'd draw the picture of the word, and we'd have the children repeat and spell out the word, and they each had their own little boards, too, so it was a lot of, a lot of learning different words in, in English and um, very visual, but they were also eager to learn. They, were, they, they ate up every little bit that you gave them, both from, you know, the, the food, the nourishment to, to the education bits. And, you know, you don't see always that hunger for education um, here in the U.S. when it's, it's given so freely here. You know, it's easy to take for granted. So the Live Beyond does two different types of mission trips. So they do a medical mission and they do a Capa to Moon trip. And typically, they, they started out as med- a medical operation. Uh, David Vanderpool was a trauma surgeon, and so that's, this, this was all born out of coming in to do relief work after the earthquakes. Uh, so that's, that's their bread and butter. But what we got to be involved in was the kids' trip. And so that's, that's what the Kepa Tamun, it means, oh, man, what does it mean? <laughs> Love for Love yep. for children, yeah. essentially. Yeah. I want to uh, there for a second, too. Go ahead. Uh, so the, while we were there for the week, uh, they do this kids program uh, every week, but every couple of months they'll bring in a group of Americans. And their big thing right now is uh, it, it's not an orphanage. These kids just come in from the surrounding villages. Uh, so their big thing right now is they're trying to start an English-speaking school because if these kids can learn English and they can learn to get an education in English, then that's really the key for being able to, to move on. And, and the goal is not for them to you know, be successful and move to America. That's what they don't want to have happen. They want to be able to give these guys an education and have them be built up into the leaders of Haiti for you know, 20 years down the, lo- down the road. Uh, so, so that's the majority of what we were doing was working with the kids and trying to help them learn the English. And a lot of times, their teachers, we were helping to teach their teachers English too, because uh, they were, you know, okay, how do you spell snake? You know, and we we just just basic stuff like that. Uh, and and it also wasn't just our group. So Preston Crest was there along with a group from Abilene, uh, and then a couple of onesies, twosies. There were there were a couple other people from Dallas. Um, some from New England area, I think. There's some from different, kind of up, mostly, I think, uh, Dallas and then, and then Abilene. Yeah, so, so Live Beyond, about once a month they'll have one of these trips, and their goal is they try to bring about 50 people uh, down on a trip. And so our group of seven, it was, uh, we were about a third of the group. It was probably about 20 to 25 on the week that, they were, that we were there. It was a little smaller than most of their groups. Uh, but that's some background on the trip. 
Organizations sometimes major in service, sometimes they major in education, sometimes they major in water relief or, or hunger or whatever. Uh, Live beyond majors in Jesus. Relentlessly, unapologetically, wherever they go, they have, at the very beginning of every conversation, it is Jesus Christ and who he is for their lives and, and everything they do, they taught the children when they have the food that they have, the lunches that they have. Before they do, they thank Jesus for giving them the food. Now, we do too, but there's something about hearing those children thanking Jesus and, and Lori singing and helping, making sure that they get that this is Jesus that provided this for you. Everything about here is Jesus was powerful. And one of the significant things, I think, was that as we came off the plane, we, went, we did the two-hour ride, and it was, on, uh, it was a beatdown. I mean, the roads were horrible, like Jillian said, and it was slow, and it was methodical. We saw people in shacks and run down uh, villages and back roads and in very dark places. And then when we got to live beyond, there was a sense of light and love and grace and goodness. But after the day's events, we would go out into the community. We'd have community trips. And we saw the contrast between the beauty of what was happening at Live Beyond and the children, and they're talking of Jesus, and then the stark contrast with the darkness, the voodoo culture, the oppressive voodoo culture that took place. And we went into some places that uh, were very dark, and w- but we brought a sense of light and a sense of Jesus. One was one encounter that we had. I shared this the weekend that we came back was the, the day we had church the Sunday morning. We, had, we, we ate lunch real quick, and then we went up and we met Macy, who was a, a former voodoo priestess. Uh, one of y'all give your remembrance of encountering Macy and the little the, the hike up to see her and the shack, the rundown shack, and some of that? Um, so that was like our first day that we were there. That was our first full day. So we had gotten there. By the time we got to the compound, it was night. We put everything away and we went to bed. So the morning came and uh, we went with the children. Um, Part of being in the program um, that we didn't mention is the kids had to be 40% um, underweight. Um, That was the criteria. And I think they have about 100 kids, roughly, um, there. So that was, that's pretty much, and what they do is they provide for them to go to school because they don't have a public school, so you have to pay for them to go to school. And then they provide two meals to them a day, um, Monday through Friday. So sometimes that's the only time the kids eat is when they, when they come. Um, anyway, fast forwarding, um, so we, they said, okay, we're going to go see Macy. And we've heard stories um, about Macy. She was an ex-voodoo um, priestess. And one of the acts of worship is to walk across fire. Well, she, being a priestess, she, she did that um, fairly regularly. And her feet were mangled. So we're like, okay, I mean, you don't, you don't know what that really means. Um, so we go up this road, and it's, it's bumpy. Um, it's not paved. It's pretty much a dirt road and it's not even a nice dirt cleachy road it's a dirt road and we go up and they said okay everyone get out and I'm like okay we get out and we start walking up this hill 
And mind you, we'd probably been driving about 30 minutes um, before we got to this stop. And we're walking, and Matthew and I like to hike. And I've been on some, I've climbed some mountains, I've been on wilderness trek and all that, and this was a hike. Like, I was even having, I'm, I mean, I'm fairly in shape, and I was even having to stop and take a breath every so often. And they're like, okay, we're here. And we're like, okay, well... Um, you, you see naked kids running around, um, and I'm like, okay, well, do we need to put clothes on them? Like, what's going on here? And we, Macy um, is in her house, and they're like, hold on, she's, you know, she's getting ready to come out. So as we're waiting for her, you're just kind of looking, and her house literally, or tin, is tin. Um, I don't know how it's mushed together or whatnot, and there's a tarp over it. Um, I've seen, you've probably seen pictures of um, guys putting blue tarp on. Uh, well, that was her house. Um, and then finally she comes out and, you know, you know it's rude to stare, so, but you can't help but just look at her legs. And I don't know how to describe them and I don't need to be graphic or anything, but they were, they were I've never seen anything like that before. And, you know, she just walks out like, hey, guys, you know, um, of course, in Creole, and just happy to see everyone. She goes around and gives every single person a kiss. And I think there was like 20 of us. And she went around and gave everybody a kiss. And I believe it was Bailey, um, Philip Bailey. He's like, hey, Macy, let me, let me dress your feet. And she sits down, and we start dressing. The, he starts dressing her feet and um, putting gauze and ointments on it and it's gross like if you're if you're not used to that stuff then you just kind of stayed away but um the other thing was just looking at the children and I remember we said a prayer and this was a pretty impactful um time for me but so everyone starts walking down and I'm like well I'll wait for a minute and I'll wait for Matthew and Matthew never came and the people had already left, and I'm like, okay, um, when are they coming? Because it was Matthew and probably like two other. And there was a little kid. Um, he was probably about six, and we didn't speak English, and he just held on to my hand, and he had this oversized like polo shirt. Like that was his only, only thing he had on. Um, it looked like a dress, but it was just an oversized polo shirt. It was backwards, <laughs> like, uh, and it was inside out. I remember that. And he just held on to my hand, and I held on to his hand, and we waited there about five, ten minutes. Still nobody. I was like, okay, I'm in the middle of Haiti by myself. I don't know what's going on. And I started walking back to the house, and I was like, okay, I don't hear anything. And I walked back to the house, and no one's there. So I'm literally by myself in this place. I know nothing about, like, just saw, you know, what voodoo uh, does to you pretty much. And I'm like, okay, it's just me and this little kid. And he had no shoes on. And this was rocky terrain. And we, and we start walking hastily down. And I remember I was like walking, walking, walking. I was like, I gotta get, I gotta catch up to these people. And he held on to my hand the whole time. And I think one time I kind of slipped or something and he helped me up and he was, he was my pal. And I don't know, like that was kind of symbolic for me. In a way, I felt like, you know, presence of God was with me. Um, and I don't know how to explain that, but 
that little one like held on to my hand the whole time. And then finally we got up to the crowd and I see Matthew like all in the way in the front. And I'm like, where, where did you go? He's like, oh, we took a shortcut. And I was like, oh, I'm glad I didn't wait any longer or I would have been, y'all would have left me. But that little boy the whole time like held my hand all the way down. Um, come to find out, Macy, um, she walked from the top all the way down to the compound, which, mind you, that was a good trek to just our cars and another, like, 30 minutes in our cars down to the compound. And she walked barefooted um, while she was pregnant um, multiple times because that's where she got her um, health care for the baby because they have a maternity program. And then she would walk back up, and she did that daily. And then when she had the baby, she did it with the baby, with the newborn, walking down barefooted with her mangled feet. And that, that's just, that was her life, and she did it. She was consistent with it. Um, anybody want to add on to If one of you could tell a little bit about, in addition to Macy, the, uh, I don't know that there was a more significant manifestation of darkness for me than seeing Annette and that occasion. Would one of y'all share that? Your, your encounter of that, I mentioned that on the Sunday morning here. Tell what, your, what it was like for you to encounter Annette. We had heard, we had heard stories about Annette kind of all week. And um, nothing can really prepare you to see, to see Annette and where, where she's kept. Um, I couldn't believe how how evil people were to her. She um, was born with dwarfism and some kind of bone disorder. And she identifies probably more as, as livestock than human being because she's been treated less than livestock and been housed with a pig most of her life in a shack without any windows and they keep her in there and they are the the little town she lives in is called Labrat and it was one of the most evil places I think I've ever been in this life um, it just radiates hate um, you look into the eyes of the people you pass in that town and they just hate just seems to be pouring out of them and it was one of the more developed towns in, in the area. And um, they're very devout followers of Satan. And they use Annette as their joke, as their circus clown. They take her out, they beat her, they abuse her, they taunt her for sport. They don't care for her, they don't feed her. Um, the Vanderpools do. And they hope to take her out of there um, at some point, but at this point, if they do, it would be seen as kidnapping. Um, she doesn't speak. She squeals whenever she, anyone comes around her because she's afraid of being hurt because that's all she's known from humans, other humans. Um, the only person that really has any kind of rapport with her is Laurie Vanderpool. And she can somewhat speak, communicate with her and calm her down. 
but awesome. yeah. Another uh, another instance, or uh, I guess time that was there was uh, when we went to uh, I forget their names, but it was the um, the old man that was blind that you put the eye drops in, and I remember when we're there, I remember looking over, and then there's this shack, and immediately when I looked at it, all I could think was, this is evil, and I don't know why I thought that, but I just looked at it, and just, that's the only thing I could think of, it was like, that's evil. After we're done with um, talking to these, uh, these folks that we were visiting, uh, Ms. Vanderpool comes over and says, this is a voodoo peristyle. It's basically a voodoo, voodoo shrines where they would practice voodoo. And she went on later in the week to say that how Satan is really kind of the father of this country. And you could really see it by just how much chaos is everywhere. And just looking at this place, I just got the chills. I just, all I could think was, this is evil. And in a lot of these instances, like what a lot of these people have been through, um, you just get these overwhelming chills. Um, but, well, I bring that up to say there was a stark contrast between seeing those things and we, when we see, saw Macy, we saw the great things that, you know, she made a clean break from all those things and how everyone was on the outside of the compound versus inside the compound every day when they would have church. I mean, you're talking about two completely different, uh, just, I mean, people are, you know, every day at church, they're, they were singing, uh, dan- joy, you know, joyfully um, expressing themselves for God. Mm-hmm. So. I, would, I would add to that, and thank you, Austin, for that, for a reminder, that community is the same community where Macy lives. And each evening we would go out and we would visit a community and that one we went back to the latter part of the week. And one of the reasons they wanted us to go there was because their two stellar students happened to be a brother and a sister that were of the school. And we were going to go and visit those two students. Well, we went there and it happened to be, as Austin said, right across from a, a, shrine, a voodoo shrine where satanic worship was taking place. And it was just across a little brush where these two, this little boy and this little girl were uh, standout students. The, uh, the mother had died, and the father was always drunk and was never really tending to the kids, so only the grandparents were taking care of the kids. The grandparents, they said, were about, uh, Lori said they were about 50 years old. They looked about 30 years older than that. And one was, the grandfather was blind, and the grandmother was very feeble, but they were standing there very proud as Lori was bragging on the students. <clears throat> Seeing this one, go over with eye drops and seeing this group surround these students and with this family and Josh Alexander surrounded and prayed for them she didn't hesitate Jillian did not hesitate for a second to take these drops and open up the eyes of the grandfather and keep in mind this is a very uh, nasty culture with lots of diseases but Julia, and I can say that about, I'm saying about her, I saw each of them express and behave in this way. They didn't stop. They didn't hesitate. She loved them by reaching up and pulling his eyes back and touching his face gently and kindly, and tenderly and compassionately. 
And his eyes were difficult to open. In fact, it took two of us to try to do all that to get the eye drops in his eyes. It wasn't about eye drops and it wasn't about blindness. It was about light confronting love and a culture of darkness. And it was a privilege to see each of them do that. And it was a privilege continually to be with you guys, whether it's Haiti or other places. But in this case, I, I don't know. I've been to third world countries for 20 or 25 or 30 years. And I don't know that I've seen this kind of darkness. Shared with you all coming back. They saw a different side of me coming back because we were loaded up in the truck after, after seeing Annette. And I was angry. And I expressed some of that anger that night. And it was a little bit, uh, the filter was off. And I don't apologize for it then. I don't apologize for it now. Because I believe the God that sent the Christ to a world of darkness knew he was sending his son, the source of light, to a place of darkness. And sometimes it was gentle and kind, and sometimes it was not. I want to read something to you that became very, it's, it's a scripture that we've all known before, heard before, but it took on a whole new life when we were there this past, uh, this in October. And it's a core scripture that... Uh, the Vanderpools focus on it's it's Jesus on Jesus it's verse it's, it's Luke chapter 4 and verse uh, 18 I'll back up a second to 14 Jesus returned to Galilee on the power in the power of the Holy Spirit and news about him spread throughout the whole countryside he taught in their synagogues and everyone praised him he went to Nazareth where he had been brought up and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue as was his custom he stood up to read the scroll of the prophet Isaiah had uh, was handed to him unrolling it he found the place where it is written the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to preach good news to the poor he has sent me to proclaim freedom from the prison for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, and to proclaim the year of our Lord's favor. This is Jesus about Jesus. One of the things that David particularly emphasizes is when you go and you work with the oppressed, you have to confront an oppressor. And his name's Satan. And we saw him probably in a little different way in Haiti than maybe we do in North America. But he's still alive and well in our country and in Haiti and wherever we go. And we want to encourage, I love you guys, and I was honored and moved to, be, to see you do that in Haiti. I want to encourage all of us to be reminded that we're not just showing up to church. And we're not just hanging out to be good people. We are on a mission of hope and light and life and love wherever we go. Ghana, Guatemala list them all but we've added one more now we've added Tomazoo, Haiti, Port-au-Prince and we come back to this place, Dallas, Texas it's a privilege to be on his side and it's a privilege to be with this church and this family and it's a privilege to be called by God the Father and represent his son and be moved by his spirit we hope this has been encouraging for you tonight. It's just a glimpse of some of the experience we had in October in Haiti. We're going to need to wrap up, but uh, 
as always, if we can do any, any final any final thoughts, Matt? Can I? Yeah, please. Can I say Absolutely. An ending thing. Absolutely. So, so we could have been here for hours tonight telling you stories about how some of the stuff we saw, how it, it shook us. Uh, but, but I do want to finish off too with a note about Live Beyond and and. Yes. There, there's there's so many things they're doing there, uh, and we and we were there for the kids program, interacting with them, uh, teaching them English, trying to teach them about Jesus through translators, uh, and and we were interacting with the staff there. And uh, the Vanderpools are big on any time a group from America or wherever comes down, it raises the water level a little bit. And what they meant by that is just just bringing down the Holy Spirit with us, just having other Christians there in a place that's so dark helps for those Haitians there to not just see the the Vanderpools, but other people that are Christians and walk in that life uh, to see that and to have an example to follow by. Uh, and they do, I mean, they do medical stuff. They, they're doubling the space for operation rooms in Haiti. There's, I think they said... There's four operating rooms in, in all of Port-au-Prince right now, and they're building four. They're going to double the ER space in Haiti. Uh, and, and there's so many things they do, but but it it's never just that. Uh, Dr. Vanderpool always says, you know, we want to bring them clean water, which is something they did. They've provided clean water for a town of 300,000. Uh, but not only do they want to bring the clean water, they want to teach them about the living water. And that's something that they're doing. Uh, Every week they're having baptisms and, and all the time they're saving people and it's that's was the most important part of being there. Absolutely, Austin. Um, before we wrap up, I I'm, I wanted to do this before, but I you know me you know me squirrel IADD. Uh, I don't we wouldn't have been able to do a lot of this without everyone here and that helped us early on. So uh, I wanted to say thank you. Uh, wasn't just us. I mean, a lot of people here had a lot to do with uh, help us getting there. So, thank you very much. So we thank you, and we want to also let you know that this group is committed to go back. And we have been thinking about possible times and dates in September, in, in seventeen, or potentially in eighteen. And so uh, this group will be sharing those opportunities and add that to the others that we have. Preston, Chris. Once again, we're thankful to be sharing this. And thankful to be sent by this church. If you would guess, let's go. Thanks.